Hello and you're very welcome to Maritime Ireland. This is Tom McSweeney with the Maritime Ireland Radio Show, the monthly programme and podcast bringing you the most comprehensive and informative news, comment and opinion about Ireland's maritime culture, history, tradition and development. There's been a lot of public discussion about naval exercises in the past few weeks. On this edition, we discuss the Irish Naval Service, the challenges it faces at present and its future, with the flag officer commanding its naval operations, Commodore Michael Malone, who has a clear view of what life at sea demands. Seagoing 24-7-365 is really something that you have to be dedicated to. The reality is that it takes a special type of person to undertake the duties that any merchant seaman or person from the Navy will undertake. Times at sea are very challenging. The weather can be very, very challenging off the west coast of Ireland. Uh, We've seen significant increase where we've seen up to 23 metre waves. And that's about 75 feet, some waves. We'll discuss the success of Rosslair Europort on becoming Ireland's number one port for direct European freight. We'll hear about a new water safety programme for secondary schools being launched this month, examine aspects of those Russian naval exercises and their effects on marine life, hear from the fishing industry and bring you a sound from the sea that caused excitement in Cork's city centre. The foghorn is just an iconic sound, very much so, and very much part of our whole maritime history and things like that. And because it appeared irregular, people would go to the seaside, they wouldn't hear it, and people would go to the seaside and they'd hear it. That's Danny McCarthy, the sound artist who grabbed the attention of Cork's citizenry when he broadcast the sound of a foghorn over the city centre. We'll also have news from the lifeboats and a report on what's been called the invasion of alien marine species into Ireland. All in this edition of the Maritime Ireland radio show and podcast, bringing to your attention the maritime sphere and that the seas around Ireland, our lakes, rivers, our inland waters are vital socially and economically to this island nation. The Naval Service is short of personnel. It has had to cut back on sea patrols. It faces challenges and difficulties, but also opportunities for the future. All of which have to be dealt with by the man responsible for naval operations, Commodore Michael Muldoon, the first engineer to be appointed flag officer commanding the Naval Service, which he joined as a cadet in 1981, having left the Department of Social Welfare. Quite a change in career, as I remarked when we met at Naval Service Headquarters on Hull, Bolin Island in Cork Harbour. I joined the Naval Service in 1981, and at the time there was significant uh, trouble getting jobs uh, in the wider Irish economy. And uh, initially, having leaving school, I had uh, applied for a clerical officer in the civil service, and I was lucky enough to 
be appointed and spent six months in the civil service in the Department of Social Welfare, as it was at the time in Ireland's for your with in Dublin. But having said that, going through school, I was very, very interested in engineering and in the sciences, and I had taken maths and the three sciences uh, through school. So I always had an, a bent towards uh, engineering. And uh, when I was in the job in social welfare, uh, I realised that uh, that wasn't going to be the long-term uh, game for me, and ultimately I wanted to apply and get to college and, and do something in the engineering field. So uh, Naval Service Engineering Cadetship uh, came up, and I applied for that. Uh, I was lucky enough to have a very, very good career in engineering in the Naval Service as a result of that. It's a rather big change from social welfare into the Naval Service, going to sea. Indeed it is, uh, but uh, at the time, I, I suppose uh, I was prompted by my parents to look at all options, be the banks or, or the Post and Telegraphs or, or any of the jobs in Ireland at the time, because the economy was so bad at the time, there was very, very little real work going on in Ireland. So that's really why, why I applied for the social welfare, but there was no real intent to stay there. It was just a stepping stone to do something different. And obviously I had been, I had been offered various different uh, courses in college. But when this uh, opportunity came up with the uh, Naval Service Engineering Cadetship, I thought it was something different. And uh, I, I applied and I was successful. Uh, I was lucky enough as well to also have the opportunity to uh, put in for time off from the civil service with a view to going back should it not work out for me. But uh, uh, thankfully it worked out extremely well and I thoroughly enjoyed my time and significant amount of sea time over the, the period I've been in the naval service over the last 40 years. What stands out or does anything stand out amongst the myriad of duties the Naval Service has? Well, obviously, uh, over that period of time, we've been involved in a significant number of major events. One that comes to mind is obviously the Air India tragedy of 1985. And I had just left college at the time, and um, I was uh, appointed to Ethna, and I had to travel from Dublin to join the vessel before uh, the, the rescue mission was undertaken with the side scan sonar and magnetometer and we spent 10 days uh, in 85 uh, at very very slow speeds looking to get the black box on the sea floor and uh, that was very very interesting it was a uh, my introduction really to sea going obviously i'd been at sea prior to that uh, in various different capacities but that was my first time as a, a qualified engineer to go out as a junior engineer on board the vessel um, more recently, I've spent a significant amount of time on uh, Deirdre, Emer, and in fact, I've, I've actually physically sailed on all of the vessels of the Naval Service uh, over the recent past. And uh, I was also appointed to be the Marine Engineer Supervisor for the build of Neve uh, back in 2000 in UK, uh, in Appledore. So I saw the, the build of that vessel literally from the plates up uh, to delivery and subsequently uh, I sailed as the engineer on her uh, to Southeast Asia. And what we now have is a, a significant benefit from that and we can see the likes of Diageo and the likes of Ornua and a significant number of language training facilities in Ireland benefiting from that trade trip that we did down to Southeast Asia. And a significant amount of the business that's being done with that area uh, came as a consequence to that, that trip. So at the time, I was a bit uh, cynical about uh, what we were doing, but it was, uh, in hindsight, extremely beneficial for the country. It must be amazing to have been involved in the design and the building of ships like that and to look out at them now from the naval base 
There must have been an immense feeling of satisfaction. Indeed, and uh, I suppose the, the real satisfaction for me was that we had the 75th uh, anniversary for the Naval Service um, last year, and uh, five of the vessels uh, that I'd been involved with, the design and build of, uh, to a certain extent, Roisin and uh, the uh, four P60-class vessels were all at sea over that week. And uh, certainly, I must admit to being very proud of the fact that the four P60s transited through the Pigeon House into Dublin and more recently into Cork. Certainly a proud moment and put out the chest in that regard because it was uh, very, very significant to see those vessels. And the completion of that, I was programme manager for the build of the four P60s and involved in the, to a significant degree in the, uh, the build and uh, design of the P60s. And obviously they will be with us over the next probably 30 years. You became in charge, flag officer, commanding the Naval Service. It faces its own problems now, as you, as you, you said about the 75th anniversary. A lot of challenges, getting people. You have made it quite clear that the Defence Forces obviously generally need more people, but you've been very specific that you'd like to see more people going to sea, joining the Naval Service. That's a challenge. Indeed, it's a challenge. It has always been a challenge. And we've seen peaks and troughs over the years. I have 40 years service here. And I've seen this happen pre previously. But I think uh, it's been exacerbated to a certain extent by the COVID challenge over the last while. And people are very slow to engage and to join the, the services. But I think we will turn that corner. Uh, we've new, obviously at the moment, we have the Commission on Defence, uh, which will be reporting very soon. And I anticipate that we will have good news for the forces out of that. And I think uh, uh, that potentially could be uh, what will bring us into the, the next century uh, with regard to how we operate, uh, how we uh, determine uh, the, the position of the various different services within the Defence Forces. And I think there will be a more joint activity right across the, the forces between ourselves, the Army and the Air Corps. And that will be to the benefit of all services going forward. Uh, so obviously we're also looking at the potential use of a multi-role vessel in, in time and that may well give us an opportunity to work with other nations as we've done uh, heretofore in the likes of Operation uh, Sophia uh, and more recently Irini in the Mediterranean. Uh, where you can see uh, people who are going to sea, obviously travelling far from our shore, and that gives an opportunity for a bit of travel and, and excitement, and that's what people ultimately want, uh, joining the likes of a Navy. Uh, people join the Navy to see the world to a certain extent. I know it's a, a bit of a cliche, but the reality is that that helps significantly, and it, it attracts people into the Navy, and hopefully in time that will help us too. I detect from what you say and from the, the, the comments you've made in the media that personally you obviously are upset when you can't have the, all the ships operating. You've made that quite clear. You'd like to see all the ships operating, but that takes people? That certainly takes people and, and it takes time to develop the skill sets and also retain the skill sets, but you have to have suitably qualified, experienced personnel to undertake the work in a safe manner on board ship. 
and I've been to the forefront in pushing for safety at sea. Uh, and that has to be the fore point. And, and at times we've been challenged to get vessels to sea um, because of uh, COVID in certain small uh, designated skill set areas. But I've no doubt in time that we will improve the numbers that we have in the organisation and that will give us the opportunity to get the vessels back uh, to full operation. Because it, after all, the maritime area is approximately 10 times the size of uh, the landmass of Ireland and ultimately there's a significant area that has to be uh, surveilled. Uh, there's a significant amount of fishery protection work out there and there's a significant number of other areas that we get involved in and have been more recently involved in with the likes of narcotics interdiction. Uh, that that's always a challenge and obviously that is on everybody's mind ashore in Ireland that there's a significant amount of drugs right across the communities in Ireland and it's ultimately part of our job to try and ensure that that doesn't come into the country. So that, that is a difficult area but at the same time I think we're in uh, now with an increased uh, number of vessels that are more capable that we can cover greater ground and uh, certainly do a better job at sea for the, the people of Ireland. Over the 40 years you've been in the Naval Service, it obviously changed hugely. Ladies, women are in there. You have your first diving officer. Who, huge changes. It's always difficult to accept change, but it seems to have passed easily. There was a time when I thought, covering Naval stories, we never see women in the Navy, but it became normal. If, if that's the correct way to put it. Yeah, it, it's certainly normal. They, they have been accepted on a par with uh, their male colleagues. Uh, and I think that was the big difference between ourselves and the, uh, the Army. The Army initially uh, had certain roles assigned to uh, females. And, and more recently, obviously, they've changed that dramatically uh, to the extent that a, a cadet colleague of mine now uh, Major General Maureen O'Brien is uh, serving in New York, uh, which is uh, magnificent to see and to see the, the uh, advancement of uh, the defence forces to that effect. Certainly we, uh, at the moment, have approximately 7.5% 7, 7 uh, female uh, participation in the, the Navy, but I would uh, like to see that increase dramatically. But it's very, very difficult and challenging to, to attract in females at the moment, uh, but we're doing our best in that regard, I think. But we need to do more. From the naval perspective, uh, we made a decision at the outset that they would have to undertake all roles. Uh, and I think that was the, the premise on which we operated. One thing I do notice about the people in the Navy uh, is that the standards they have and the conditions at times, because our waters can be very rough, they're, they're, they're generally high-quality people that you get in, and they are dedicated to seagoing. Uh, very much so. Um, uh, seagoing, 24-7, uh, 365, is, is really something that you have to be dedicated to. And uh, the reality is that it takes uh, a special type of person to undertake the uh, duties uh, that uh, any merchant seaman or person from the Navy will undertake. Uh, and, and that ha has been difficult. Um, and it's not for everybody. Uh, typically, uh, in the uh, marine life, uh, people may spend 10 to 12 years uh, seagoing and then move ashore. Whereas in the Navy, we try to get a bit more out of them. But it's difficult, and, and the times at sea are very challenging. It is difficult at time. 
The uh, weather, obviously, is, uh, can be very, very uh, challenging off the west coast of Ireland. Uh, we've seen significant increase over the last eight to ten years, where we've seen up to 23-metre waves. Um, and that's really why we've uh, developed from the uh, P20-class vessels right to, through to the P60-class vessels to allow for this um, uh, wave um, uh, anomalies. And also, uh, that's why we're now looking at uh, larger vessels to work in, in those challenging areas of the North uh, West Atlantic. Working uh, the sea life is, is very, very challenging, trying to get people to, and not alone the people themselves, but their families to accept that you're going to be away from home for uh, extended periods of time. Uh, and that, to a great degree, doesn't tie in with modern living, as, as people understand it. Uh, but uh, certainly there are huge benefits to be attained from uh, seagoing uh, in the likes of the Naval Service. There's nothing, obviously, I sense from you that you'd have changed about your own career in the Navy? Uh, no. I've thoroughly enjoyed every bit of it. I've thought on a couple of occasions that I might move on, and I made uh, one agreement with my wife, and that was that if I found there was any day that I didn't enjoy what I do, I might move on but thoroughly enjoyed the entire time that I've had in the service to date. Commodore Michael Malone, Flag Officer commanding the Naval Service, who enjoys being in the Navy. If you'd like to read more about Commodore Malone, he's also my interviewee in the series which I write in the February edition of the Marine Times Monthly newspaper. Next to a sound once familiar all around the coast of Ireland. The sound of the foghorn, often described as sorrowful, a warning to mariners of land close by when fog covered the sea. But not a sound heard in cities, so it surprised the citizenry of Cork when it sounded from the Crawford Art Gallery in Emmet Place, in the heart of the city. Way back in history, the gallery building was a custom house for ships calling to the city. Danny McCarthy has been one of Ireland's pioneers of performance and sound art for 40 years and is preserving sounds lost in modern life. His exhibition, Foghard and Sound, Lost at Sea, recalled that sound, which was turned off from Irish lighthouses 11 years ago. In the gallery, I talked to him and to assistant curator of collections and special projects at the gallery, Dr. Michael Waldron, who told me about another exhibition opening there next month of the Corkport Company's collection of paintings of the port and harbour. First, why had Danny McCarthy an interest in foghorns? Uh, well, I'm interested in all sound and particularly interested in the whole idea of acoustic ecology and sounds that are disappearing from our society at the moment. Like the foghorn disappeared over 10 years ago and most people don't even quite realise it's gone. But sounds are constantly disappearing. Like, I mean, people will remember the sound of a dial-up modem and that's gone, you know. But the foghorn is just an iconic sound, very much so, and very much part of our whole maritime history and things like that. And because it's appeared irregular, People would go to the seaside, they wouldn't hear it, and people would go to the seaside and they'd hear it. And when we did the show here first, I mean, the amount of people that rang in 
talking about the memories they had up to Foghorn down in Crossaven and Roaches Point and whatever. And I think for me, the piece spurred initially from having spent a residency in the lighthouse in Roaches Point when the Serious Art Foundation had an artist residency there. I kind of lived with the Foghorn when it came and the whole building vibrated, Lighthouse Keeper's Cottage next door to it. So that stayed in my memory and mind. And then when it was being ceased or demolished or whatever, it just struck me like that, um, you know, the sound should be preserved in some way. A very iconic sound, as you say. People used to describe it as sad, others said cheery. People in maritime areas said a bit of company. It must have been amazing to have it blare out over Cork City during your exhibition. It was, you know, quite, quite, quite amazing because I designed it in such a way that it would work with the, the buildings around here and echoing down out over Emmett Place and echoing down Opera Lane and places like that down Paul Street. And people, it made people think about it. It made people realise, like, what's this sound, you know? And then, or why is this here? And then they'd kind of associate it with it and come back and say, oh... And then they'd go to the gallery and discover that his, the fact that the sound has disappeared is part of it, you know. And then, um, I mean, I worked with a curator here, Don Williams, who was fantastic with the whole project since its inception. And um, the idea being having the, this building as a maritime building as well. It has a whole history as a maritime place, so it was the ideal place for it. And the nice thing about it as well is it became part of the National Collection, which is the first sound installation to become part of the National Collection. And But is more happier for me is that the fact that the Crawford once again pioneered the, the fact that sound became part of the National Collection. Are there other sounds disappearing which you intend to keep in mind for preserving because life is changing sound is changing but i have worked and done some uh, installations both for mallow arts festival and uh, hearsay international audio arts festival using the sound of the anvil and that has particular resonance for me because my father was a blacksmith and my grandfather was a blacksmith and my great-grandfather was a whitesmith so but at one time the loudest sound in any village or town in ireland was the sound of the anvil and you could hear it echoing up and down the streets and we did an installation for Mallow Arts Festival where the sound of the anvil echoed down the laneway where my father had his forge and echoed down over Main Street where once it was a live real sound mine was a recording but again it brought back memories to people and one of the rare occasions people were actually queuing up to hear the sound installation was in Mallow for the sound of the anvil I called it ghost anvil but it applies to every town and village in Ireland you know yeah. Mallow on the Blackwater and the Anvil, very appropriate. Michael, Danny made a very interesting point about this building and its maritime heritage. It has a very, very rich and long maritime heritage because, of course, the oldest part of Crawford Art Gallery's building was built as a custom house uh, in 1724, so almost 300 years ago. And it functioned on, I suppose, the King's Dock or the King's Quay in the heart of Cork City. So it was part of the commercial history, but also this is where customs and excises happened. Um, if we think of airports today, perhaps, it's the same sort of idea. And so this was a maritime building in a maritime city um, and functioned like that for about 70 or 80 years. Um, so we're very keen to reconnect and reignite those histories of the building, particularly that, those maritime associations. Obviously, then, a fascinating place to have the foghorn sound from. And you have other paintings coming in of Cork resonance via the Cork port history. 
Yes, indeed. So not only with Danny McCarthy's Found Sound Lost at Sea 11111, which is a, a very contemporary work and yet a very deeply historic work, we um, also have a rich uh, maritime collection, particularly of paintings and print. Um, but uh, very, very recently, we uh, received a gift from the Port of Cork company uh, of its art collection, um, which comprises, I think, 19 paintings, um, uh, mainly 19th century, uh, by artists like George Mency Wheatley Atkinson, who had been born and raised in Cove, um, was a, a sort of a seaman himself, a, a ship's carpenter, a surveyor of shipping in his maturity, and a self-taught painter. Um, but we also, so that preserves wonderful images of the harbour in the 1840s and 50s and 60s. Uh, and we also have works by um, Robert Lowe Stopford and um, Henry Hartland. Um, but also within that collection is a fascinating painting from about 1960 by Sean Keating, which is a view from, I suppose, R&H Hall, those silos along the southern quays, um, looking upriver to the old Port of Cork site, which of course now has started to wrap up its business in the city. When will the public be able to see that? It's interesting also to hear the preservation with port moving downriver to Ringskiddy. When will the public be able to see that collection? So we will show uh, a selection of the Port of Cork collection uh, here at Crawford Art Gallery from the 26th of February. And that will run throughout the summer uh, until the 28th of August. Entry will be free. Dr. Michael Waldron, Assistant Curator of Collections and Special Projects at the Crawford Art Gallery and the Corkport Collection of Paintings Exhibition, which will start there on February 26 and run until August. Entry will be free. And before Dr. Waldron, sound artist Danny McCarthy and a special sound of the foghorn. <laughs> Now here's Anton O'Callaghan with the monthly news roundup. The Department of Transport is examining a recommendation from the Marine Casualty Investigation Board that new regulations should be made to include mandatory fire detection systems on charter boats. This follows the Board's investigation of a fire aboard a motor cruiser on the River Shannon near Jamestown, County Roscommon, on September 8, 2020 when four people aboard were rescued by a passing boat. It broke out 45 minutes after the group of four had started their voyage. If this fire had started while any of the party were asleep, then the consequences could have been more serious, the board said, pointing out that charter craft come under the 2017 Code of Practice for the safe operation of recreational craft which don't require mandatory fitting of fire detection systems. The proposed recommendation is likely to be accepted by the department and would apply only to recreational craft used for commercial purposes. The Irish Farmers Association, which represents fish farmers, has revealed that aquaculture and fisheries have not been included in the new Maritime Area Planning Bill passed by the Oireachtas in December. Theresa Morrissey is the IFA's Aquaculture Executive 
and says aquaculture must be properly treated. Aquaculture and fisheries has not been included in the Maritime Area Planning Map Bill passed by the Oireachtas recently, which will also mean both sectors will not have a place in the establishment of the new regulatory body, Maritime Area Regulatory Authority, MARA. The introduction of the MAP Bill, or indeed the establishment of the new regulatory authority in the maritime space, will not change anything about the aquaculture licensing system in its current form. However, it is inevitable that aquaculture will have to be a part of both the MAP Bill and MARA in time. But the question is, how much more time? How much more time will it take before aquaculture is properly considered when it comes to development management in the marine space? We hope it won't take too long more. There has been a general welcome for the €35 million scheme to rejuvenate public piers and harbours around the coast. There have been complaints about the condition of many of these facilities in coastal peripheral areas for years. Local authorities had claimed they weren't being given money for repair work. Announcing what he described as record funding for the coastal communities, Marine Minister Charlie McConnelloe said this is an unprecedented opportunity to invest in publicly owned piers and harbours. The European Commissioner for Fisheries says the world could use more Irish fishermen who got their game on and managed to stop Russian military exercises that would undermine their activities and marine life. They are real custodians of the sea, The world could use more of you, Commissioner Sinkovicius said in a tweet about the Russian naval exercises. Brexit affected Dublin port company operations in the last quarter of last year. Roll-on, roll-off unit volumes were down by 99,000, but the number of load-on, load-off units increased by 43,000. Brexit is causing significant changes of the makeup of unitised loads through the port, it said. Overseas, The Portuguese Navy, Air Force and police found 50 bales of cocaine inside a sinking yacht whose crew of three needed rescuing south of the island of Madeira. In a joint operation with the country's Air Force and police, they had been monitoring the yacht when bad weather struck it. The crew were rescued and arrested. Hybrid catamarans for coastal cruising are to be increased in numbers on waters in the United States. American Cruise Lines is building 12 new catamarans which will be 241 feet long and 56 wide. They will carry over 100 passengers and half that number in crew. The biggest floating plastic rubbish patch in the world is now reported to be in the Pacific Ocean, 79,000 tonnes of it between California and Hawaii, which has been called the Great Pacific Garbage Patch. The Ocean Voyages Institute a charity that collects plastic pollution on sailing expeditions, has reported that marine life found in the patch includes coastal species, evidently carried many nautical miles from their usual habitats. Coastal communities will be interested to hear that Met Aaron and Irish Lights have launched a joint trial adapting existing navigation buoys that are operated by Irish Lights by installing new wave sensors. The pilot scheme, as it's described by both organisations, is, they say, intended to provide quality-controlled, near-real-time meteorological and hydrographic data, which, they add, will improve safety for coastal inhabitants and mariners. It's always good to hear of developments to improve safety at sea. In the fishing industry, Marine Minister Charlie McConnellogue has announced that the long-delayed and long-promised improvement of Rosseville Fisheries Harbour in County Galway is to go ahead. He announced that €25 million will be provided for the construction of a deep-water pier there. It has been awaited since planning permission was granted five years ago. 
The minister says it will benefit the seafood industry and increase Rosseville's facilities for Irish and non-Irish fishing vessels. The announcement comes at a time when the task force on the Irish fishing industry has suggested a big reduction in the number of Irish fishing vessels, cutting up to 60 boats from the fleet, at a time when non-Irish vessels have bigger catching quotas in Irish waters than the Irish fleet. And some good news to finish with. Reported from Torrey Island, population 117, which has got a boat. Shli Mara Tiorenta, owned by Seamus McRory and his wife Jackie, who also run a shop, post office and rental apartments on the island. The newsletter for the islands, published by Corn and Ilan from Inishir in the Aran Islands, Shli, reports that the boat got funding support from the Leader Programme, is being used for tourism purposes, is available for emergencies and also to bring essential supplies in time of need to the island. And that's the Maritime News Roundup. This is Anton O'Callaghan reporting. You're listening to the Maritime Ireland radio show and podcast monthly, bringing you the most comprehensive and informative news, comment and opinion about Ireland's maritime culture, history, tradition and development. Listeners have been commenting about the Russian naval exercises and being mostly critical of the government's attitude to the fishing industry. And there's been a few questions as to whether this programme can be heard outside Ireland. The answer is yes on podcasts and the websites of community radio stations. And your views about maritime matters are welcome. Please email. The email address is maritimeirelandradioshow at gmail.com or text 0872-555-197. That's 0872-555-197, text and phone. And email maritimeirelandradioshow at gmail.com. Now to Rosslare Europort, which, based on 2021 figures, became Ireland's number one port for direct rural PAX services to Europe. The year also saw the highest ever activity through the County Wexford port, the direct gateway to Europe as it styles itself, all of which makes Europort General Manager Glenn Carr a happy man. Yeah, Tom, when you look back, uh, where I think last time we spoke was February, last year, February 21, so we were just uh, over a month into Brexit at that point. And while the signs were looking good, um, I don't think we expected to see such a significant uh, uptake in the new services and volume to the port. And year-end figures of delivered on the freight side a, uh, an increase of 50% uh, on previous years. Um, that's the highest ever volume of freight traffic through Rosslare Europort, an additional 62,000 units through the port um, and a really great achievement. So you're looking good for the future then at Rosslare? Yeah, really, really exciting future. I mean, when you look at uh, back in 2020, we had six services to and from Rosslare to Europe. We now have 30, so a five-fold increase. And that's going to be, that's really good for the freight and we've seen that uptake. I mean, freight uh, traffic uh, to Europe is up an incredible 371% and that equates to just about 95,000 additional units now moving on our services freight units to and from Europe from Rosslare. But also from passengers' point of view we're really looking forward to this year now 
with our with, with these services and a number of them will be very attractive for, for passengers. We saw a rebound in 21 of some of our passengers coming back. I mean, we had an extra 100,000 people through the port. Um, just about a quarter of a million people went through Ross Lair. a long way off from where we would have been, which would have been just around 800,000. But certainly now with the restrictions being lifted um, and the new services um, to Europe, but not forgetting our services to the UK, which are 56 a week, we're, we're hoping for a really, a really bumper uh, summer for our passengers and seeing really good numbers. So very strong on freight. Um, and hopefully a very strong return on passengers. I mean, we still have challenges, um, as you might have saw in our figures. Our UK freight is down 34%. And so those routes are being particularly challenged at the moment, both with the shift from the land bridge and the direct sailings, but also because uh, some trade has moved up through the Northern Ireland ports because the procedures up there are not as onerous, I suppose, in terms of the checks that take place now when you head to a port in the Republic of Ireland. Um, and so, therefore, they're seeing a significant increase in freight from the UK going into Northern Ireland and then down to the Republic. But as new, I suppose, as new checks come in at those areas, we'll see some of that traffic come back as well. But a really tremendous year for the port, a historical year for the port, and we're looking forward to building on that now going forward. Glen Carr, General Manager, Rosslare Europort, which also has a long-term development plan. Irish Water Safety is launching a new Water Insight Safety Education Programme for secondary schools, appropriately called WISE. With details for the programme, here's Chief Executive John Leach from Water Safety Headquarters in Galway. Water Safety Ireland has a new programme for secondary schools, which will be launched later this month. It is called Water Insight Safety Education, abbreviated to WISE, and that is a good way of remembering it to be wise about water safety when on or near the water. It is an online course with practical elements for students to complete to further educate themselves in the life skills of water safety and to ensure their own safety and that of others on or near aquatic environments. By the time children leave secondary school, they should have sufficient water safety knowledge and education to ensure their own safety on or near aquatic environments and have sufficient knowledge to know how to rescue somebody in distress of drowning without putting their own life at risk. This will have a very significant impact on further reducing our drowning levels in Ireland. In addition to this new programme, I'm urging all parents, teachers and carers to ensure that their children engage with the existing two water safety education programmes that Water Safety Ireland provides to preschool and primary schools, which help to equip children with the necessary life skills and water safety of swimming, basic life-saving and awareness of the dangers and hazards surrounding all aquatic environments. Local authorities have hundreds of aquatic sites risk assessed by Water Safety Ireland to ensure that these bathing locations, piers, harbours, marinas and slipways are safe for the public to enjoy. Water safety signage and public rescue equipment is erected at these locations to warn the public of the hazards that may endanger their lives or that of their families and so that a member of the public can assist a person in distress or drowning with a ring boy and rope. This equipment saves lives virtually every month on our island nation, both at inshore and coastal locations. It is worth remembering that six out of ten drownings occur at inland water sites, the remainder being at coastal sites. You can get more details about all our schools' programmes on our website at watersafety.ie. 
So enjoy your aquatic pursuits or sports safely by always wearing a life jacket on or near the water and use your influence to further reduce the number of drownings on our island nation. John Leach, Chief Executive of Irish Water Safety. Fishermen did what the government wasn't doing, led away in persuading the Russian Navy to do its exercises outside Irish waters. Brendan Byrne, Chief Executive of the Irish Fish Processors and Exporters Association, was one of two industry representatives who met Russian Ambassador Yuri Filatov. Patrick Murphy of the Irish South and West Fish Producers Organization, who had initiated the fishermen's protest, was the other. The outcome was quite an achievement for the fishermen, Brendan Byrne told me. It certainly was. Uh, the outcome was most successful, and I have to compliment the ambassador from Russia, who was very sympathetic once we made the case of the Irish fishermen and the importance of the fishing grounds, and how the impact of this drill was going to be replicated right throughout the breeding grounds and the fishing grounds. And uh, so I felt from the conclusion of the meeting that the ambassador had a great understanding of the plight of the Irish fishing industry with the decline that it's currently in and the impacts of Brexit. So I was very optimistic that there would be a positive outcome, but in the world of diplomacy, anything can happen. And as we saw that in the 48 hours after the meeting, there was different versions of the same meeting. And I suppose that is the the realm of diplomatic encounters. The public would probably have one question for you. Why did it take the fishing industry to do this more than the government? Well, it shouldn't come as a surprise to anyone that's actively involved in the fishing industry that the reality is there's a lesser standard applied to those of us that work in the fishing industry or represent the fishing industry. It doesn't seem to be top priority with any department in government. On, the, on this occasion, the department that, the, that were directly involved here is the Department of Foreign Affairs, and the Department of Transport because of the various uh, uh, exemptions that needed to be put in place. But on the run-up to us going into the Russian embassy, there was absolutely no engagement from any department with us. Uh, The entire sector was kept in the dark. There was no information sharing. And it was that background that triggered the situation where we took matters into our own hands and went into the embassy after they kindly invited us there. But the reality is, and this reality is getting worse by the day, unless the fishing industry unite and unless the fishing industry challenge the systems that are in place, we are going to continue to decline. We are the forgotten industry, and that is completely wrong, but that is the reality that's out there. And it's time now that we as an industry fought back And our greatest challenge isn't Russia, isn't Brussels. Our greatest challenge is how we are perceived within our own country. And finally, Brendan, you're now calling for a moratorium on such naval exercises in Irish waters. That's correct, because that would be the natural next step for us to go as a fishing industry. It's pointless having the goodwill of the Russian government. And it was based on goodwill that they withdrew their naval drill from the IRGEZ. There is other nations, and there has been other nations, consistently using Irish waters for naval and military exercises. So we're thinking, and we've written to on Peter regarding that, that a 10-year moratorium be put in place on eco-sensitive and environmental grounds and impact on traditional fishing grounds, using those uh, basis in order to put a monitorium of 10 years in place, which can be renewed thereafter, 
in order to protect this most valuable natural resource that we have. And I'm hoping now with the momentum that the Russian decision has created, not alone in Ireland, but globally, that the government will acquiesce to this and take a lead on it. There has been a great amount of attempts by certain ministers to take credit for this. Now is their time to show leadership and do something. Brendan Byrne, Chief Executive of the Irish Fish Processors and Exporters Association. A few very notable statements there referring to the fishing industry. We are the forgotten industry, he said, and our greatest challenge is how we are perceived in our own country. Amongst listeners' emails is the suggestion that it could be said that Vladimir Putin and the Russian Navy raised more awareness of the marine sector and the fishing industry than has happened in a long time. However, questions remain about the effect of gunnery and rocket fire on marine life and the marine environment and the effect of military sonar used by foreign navies, which is suspected to have caused the deaths of dozens, if not hundreds, of whales and dolphins. And this could have happened in Irish waters that are a declared sanctuary for whales and dolphins, as Dave Wall of the Irish Whale and Dolphin Group told Justin Marr. What's the loudest sound you've heard recently? Maybe the local roadworks that are taking too long. Or maybe the sound of a jet plane at the airport. Well, maybe not recently. These sounds are very loud, but none of them get as loud as this. This is sonar. Specifically, military mid-frequency active sonar. Underwater, its slow rolling sound waves hit 235 decibels. That's 85 decibels louder than a jet taking off 25 meters away from you. Which would burst your eardrums, by the way. The other things that generate sounds of this volume are volcanoes and earthquakes. And quite frankly, you'd be running in the other direction if you experience that kind of sound. That's Dave Wall. Conservation Officer with the Irish Whale and Dolphin Group. If we could hear it, we wouldn't allow these noises this loud to be generated on land. Underwater, it's almost a treble whammy because sound travels better underwater. So if you generate very loud, low to mid-frequency noise, it travels a very long distance and affects a very wide area. For example, a seismic survey can esonify or make noisy thousands of square kilometres of ocean. And the third whammy is global warming, because as our oceans acidify, as they are doing, noise travels even easier in more acidic waters. So the oceans are potentially just going to get louder and louder and noisier and noisier. Sonar systems can retain an intensity of 140 decibels up to 300 miles away. Evidence shows that whales will swim hundreds of miles, rapidly change their depth, or even beach themselves to escape the sound of sonar. If you're a whale or a dolphin or a porpoise, you live very much in an acoustic world. They very much rely on acoustics for everything, really. They rely on it for communication between each other. They rely on it for breeding. They rely on it for finding their food. And they rely on it for navigation. So anything that blocks their ability to work acoustically impacts them hugely. And when you add in something like mid-frequency active sonar, which is military sonar, 
that has an additional ability to actually cause them physical harm. It overlaps with the frequencies that a lot of species use, in particular the beaked whales. They vocalize in these frequencies, so their hearing is adjusted to receiving these frequencies. If you're a deep diving species like a beaked whale that lives out on the shelf slopes out to the west of Ireland, you're foraging at depths of 1,000 to 2,000 metres. Think of that. That's two kilometres down, straight down. You're living your life on the edge of physiological barriers, really. It doesn't take much to tip you over the edge and to cause harm. So we think what happens with military sonar is it either scares the animals rapidly to the surface or it causes their heart rate to increase. Either way, what it results in is a form of illness, the same as the bends that divers get when they come up too fast. Gas bubbles form in their blood system. This affects their nervous system and their soft tissues. Indeed, it can cause death directly or it can disorientate them so that they later strand and and subsequently die. UK and NATO vessels carry out naval exercises within the Irish Exclusive Economic Zone regularly, and such events have been linked to the deaths of more than 70 Cuviers and Sowbys beat whales and northern bottlenose whales that washed ashore on the Irish and Scottish coastline between August and September 2018. We think that represents only a small fraction of the actual number of animals that die. Studies by French scientists have revealed that Somewhere less than 10% of tagged dead dolphins that were actually plunked into the ocean were subsequently recovered on the coast. So a death rate of 40 or 50 animals may represent a tenfold increase on that in terms of the actual numbers that died in the event. Based on the last big census that was done in 2007, um, we think there's probably only a few thousand of these animals living along our western coast. So you're dealing with a small population suffering relatively high death rates as a result of these events. And that potentially can have serious conservation impacts and consequences for these species. The Irish Whale and Dolphin Group are supporting the recent call by the Irish South and West Fish Producers Organisation and the Irish Fish Processors and Exporters Association for a 10-year moratorium on military exercises within the Irish Exclusive Economic Zone. As well as supporting fishers' rights, the group believe it would greatly reduce the threat those exercises pose to whales and dolphins. We really have been consistent in our call as the Irish Whale and Dolphin Group that the use of mid-frequency active sonar, military sonar, is something we don't want to see in the Irish whale and dolphin sanctuary. Our own naval service don't have this capacity. Personally, I hope they never develop it. (laughs) Um, It's something that we'd prefer not to see used at all because of its potential for causing harm to protected species. Dave Wall of the Irish Whale and Dolphin Group. Newcastle in County Down has a new lifeboat on station. On its way there from Dunlera, the crew got to know their new boat, as Neve Stevenson, media manager of the RNLI in Ireland, tells us. Dunleary to County Down provided the coastal waterway for the Newcastle crew to train on their new lifeboat as it headed for the Northern Ireland coastline a lifeboat that had been retired from active service at Margate on England's southeast coast last April. 
The all-weather lifeboat faced an uncertain future, but RNLB Leonard Kent will continue life-saving work out of Newcastle. The RNLI Support Centre at Poole considered her worthy of further service and she was earmarked to replace Newcastle's existing Mersey-class lifeboat. It will be based there until building work at the station has been completed and a new Shannon-class all-weather lifeboat arrives. Where then for Leonard Kent? Well, we'll have to wait and see. In Newcastle or in Ally, there are two brothers whose great-grandfather was awarded a bronze medal for gallantry in 1942. Kieran and Lachlan Lenehan are fourth-generation lifeboat crew and they follow in the footsteps of their late great-grandfather, William James, who served as a crew member, their grandfather Mickey, who was coxswain, and their father Kevin, who was also part of the crew. It was during William James's time on the crew that he was awarded a bronze medal for gallantry for his part in the rescue of 39 people from the Browning, one of seven ships of a convoy that ran ashore in the southeasterly gale with very heavy sleet and rain on the 21st of January 1942. As I've said before, family connections are strong in the Ornali. For instance, we have a brother and sister on the crew who volunteer with Valencia Ornali, Dominic and Cornelia Line. They grew up in a house where the Ornali lifeboat pager going off was a familiar sound and are the children of the former volunteer lifeboat crew member, Neely, who after 25 years saving lives at sea, is now a deputy launching authority at the station. And we have a father and daughter life-saving team at Hoth or an ally. Stephen Harris has been a deputy launching authority at the station since 2014, while his daughter Jen joined a month before the first lockdown. Having returned from six months studying abroad in New Zealand, Jen joined the lifeboat crew in February 2020 and Stephen was a former lifeboat crew member in Dunleary. And when one of the family is lost, it is sad for all of us. The new year brought sad news for the Ornali family with the death announced of the former coxswain at Portrush Ornali, Willie McCauley. While Willie was on crew, he took part in many memorable rescues. He was involved in the rescue of two teenage boys who became trapped in a cave at Castle Rock in 2009 and which saw the crew honoured by the Ornali for the service. To all at Portrush Ornali, he was the big man. His son-in-law Johnny is a coxswain there too. Everyone in the Ornali offers their condolences. And finally, if you supported the Ornali's Christmas fundraising appeal, thank you so much. As you know, you are supporting our work in saving lives at sea and on inland waters. Many thanks. Next, the Mar Report. And this month, Justin Marr is focusing on alien species, not those from outer space, but marine alien species, the amount of which coming into Irish waters has increased by a huge 183% in 50 years. Here's Justin Marr. Flying saucers have invaded our planet. Washington, London, Paris, Moscow are key targets. The whole world is under attack. Can it survive? Whilst not as bombastic as alien invasions depicted in the B-movies of the 50s, there's been a dramatic increase in the number of high-impact invasive alien plant and animal species that have arrived in Ireland for decades. 
rising by 183% between 1961 and 2010. Research carried out in 2013 estimated the combined cost of invasive species on the island and Northern Ireland's economies at €260 million annually. Corey Creedon is an ecologist with Leave No Trace Ireland, the outdoor ethics education programme promoting responsible outdoor recreation. It's a species of plant or animal or fungus or something that, that comes from outside of Ireland, but not just from another country, but one that when it comes in, it's, it causes damage to the native plants or the native animals or the native ecosystem. What makes them so difficult, they're so good at taking over an area and cause the native plants or the native animals to, to disappear entirely. The list of invasive species in Ireland is actually quite long, uh, unfortunately. Ones that people would know quite well. I mean, Japanese knotweed is, is such a well-known invasive species. But then you've got some others that, that mightn't be as well-known, uh, but just as uh, difficult to deal with. So like the zebra mussel, uh, the chub, which is a kind of cod-like fish in our, in our freshwater system. The zebra mussel is believed to have arrived in Ireland in the mid-90s, attached to the hulls of second-hand boats imported from Britain or the Netherlands. The species would go on to spread into Northern Ireland. Waterways can provide convenient travel for these invaders. Aquatic animals and, and aquatic plants can both cause huge problems for the waterways, so it can spread entirely down along a water course. And like that, when a fish is in an area and it's invasive, it easily has access to any other waterway that that river connects to. So invasives are, are masters of spreading. They're really opportunistic. Um, I'm sure many of us have accidentally uh, moved invasive species possibly from one area to another. And in doing so, you would be really oblivious because there's no obvious sign of us doing it. Leave No Trace Ireland have recently launched their Check Clean Drying campaign in partnership with Waterways Ireland, the National Biodiversity Data Centre, Sport Island, Canoeing Island, Inland Fisheries Island, the Marine Institute, Outdoor Recreation Northern Ireland, Sport Northern Ireland, and supported by the National Parks and Wildlife Service. The Check Clean Dry campaign is asking anyone who goes out on the water to help in reducing the risk of spreading invasive species and disease by following the Check Clean Dry principles. Whenever you've been outdoors or if you've been on a river, or even just walking along beside a river. But if you just check anything that you had that would have come in contact with any of the material in that outdoor space, the bottom of your, your shoes or your boots, uh, if you're on a boat um, and you're moving the boat from one river to another, check the bottom of the boat. If you're fishing, check your boots, check your waders, check your fishing line. And what you're looking for is just some type of visible material, small little bits of soil, tiny little plants, any visible identification that there's something there that wouldn't normally be on your equipment. Uh, the next step is clean. You do your best to remove that visible material. Ideally, you use warm, soapy water, and that, that helps the removal process. But once you visibly remove material off your equipment, you'll have a good chance then of not taking something with you that you, you weren't expecting. The next step then is dry, which is a really important one that we often don't give enough time to. Ideally, after you've cleaned, uh, if you let your equipment dry, you want to give them 48 hours to fully dry. Now, it's a very difficult thing to do all the time. So we've got a little kind of caveat in there. If something cannot be dried for 48 hours, if you clean it and then disinfect it, it should work nearly as well as the 48 hours drying process. So if 
you've gone through cleaning them and then drying them for that length of time, you've reduced the chance of spreading. Invasive species, when they get into an area, are certainly no help in the environment. But I would stress, never let it dissuade you from enjoying the outdoors. I mean, the outdoors are the most amazing place to be. Here in Ireland, we have the most beautiful rivers and lakes and coastline and mountains and forests. So don't let the discussions about how to protect them weigh us down because there's way more good out there than there is that. You can find out more about the Check, Clean, Dry campaign at the Leave No Trace Island website, leavenotraceisland.org. Justin Marr reporting on alien marine species. And so we end this edition of the Maritime Ireland radio show and podcast monthly, reporting on our maritime sector. The seas around our island nation, our rivers, lakes, streams, inland waterways, are all part of Ireland's maritime culture, history, tradition and development. Sound supervision on the programme by Justin Marr. The programme email is maritimeirelandradioshow at gmail.com. Phone and text 0872 555 197. So that's email maritimeirelandradioshow at gmail.com. Phone and text 0872 555 197. Until next month's programme, you can follow us daily on Twitter at Tom McSweeney. Our weekly blog and newsletter is on Facebook and on our website tommacsweeneymarine.ie. Until next month, the usual wish of fair sailing.